This is the Sharpen Podcast. I'm Ashley, the creator of the show. And hey, just so you know, this show would not be possible without Rocky Talkies. So reach out to them and say thank you, or better yet, support their business by buying a pair of radios to use on your backcountry adventures. Here's Avron, who I interviewed today, telling us how he uses his. The best part of using Rocky Talkies when skiing with my children is that they like to go ahead of me. And about every two minutes, my youngest son, Caleb, keys up the mic and goes, Daddy? I say, yes. And he goes, I love you. Rocky Talkies are backcountry radios designed by two climbers from Denver. These radios are extremely lightweight, durable, and more affordable than any other backcountry radio on the market. If you like discounts, get 10% off your radios by going to rockytalkie.com sharpend. This episode is also brought to you by my two good buddies at The Primitive Gourmet. Their travel spice racks help you bring a full pantry of spices on any adventure. I've been using their extra large spice rack for almost a year now, and I bring it with me anytime I leave Anchorage. I even bring my spice kit with me when I'm working remote adventure TV shows to use when I'm cooking for production crews. Now, the Primitive Gourmet is crowdfunding full-scale production of their travel spice packs by launching a Kickstarter campaign. Check out the link on my website or search for Primitive Gourmet Spice Packs on Kickstarter to buy yours today. And I just want to say, these travel spice packs have completely changed the way I cook in the backcountry. And I know that any average backcountry chef would love to have one of these travel spice packs by the Primitive Gourmet. And thanks to the American Alpine Club for plugging my podcast and their newsletter, The Prescription. Head on over to their website to subscribe. Today, I chat with Avron. He was impaled on Mount Rainier with his ice axe. That's right, impaled. His ice axe went all the way through his body, narrowly missing vital organs. He's lucky to be alive today, and I'll let him tell you his story. Please enjoy. Uh, my name is Avran Estep. I am a... Um... Seriously, we talked about this. <laughs> talked about the potential of crying and and me trying not to do it but like i'm about to say like i'm a father of two boys um how old are your boys just stops me um they are eight and ten what are your boys' names uh ryland and caleb those are great names oh thank you yeah they're they're eight and ten and uh They've been adventuring with me since they were babies. Um, my, I backpacked my son, my oldest son, for the first time when he was two weeks old in like two feet deep snow on a six mile hike in 20 some degree weather. Of course, all wrapped up appropriately. They've each got like 13, 14 or summits under their belt. And they, my oldest multi-pitch climbs with me and they rock climb. And um, they're both going on big hunts this year. So they're pretty outdoorsy adventure and and like to get after it. So they're they're my little adventure partners yeah so um my climbing partner Kristen and i um not my girlfriend not to be confused with my girlfriend because uh, she's very often confused with my girlfriend but um we have a bunch of big goals coming up and we've been doing a number of things throughout the last year together you know with 14er bagging we ran all the way across the grand canyon and back for the Arctic. over the fourth of july weekend this year 2022 Avron and his climbing partner, Kristen, set out to climb Mount Rainier. His climbing partner, Kristen, was already out there doing some climbing on some of the higher peaks in the area with a mountaineering group. She was training on her advanced skills to get ready for this objective they had their eyes set on. So at this point... She was already there and had already been doing some mountaineering. She's been, um, she's been 
with a, a mountaineering group um, that offers, you know, packages to train advanced skills and all this kinds of stuff. And so she was already out there and had um, uh, been on another mountain. I, I think it was Hood. And so I had flown into Seattle and um, we were getting our gear together and organized on July 2nd and July 3rd. We headed out to start our ascent of Rainier. And um, we were doing the Emmons Glacier route. So we headed up the inner glacier up to Camp Sherman to set up um, at Camp Sherman that night and do the summit the next day. And so, you know, our conditions along the route for Sherman were a little cloudier, um, a little wetter than we were expecting for the day of our summit. Uh, the day of the summit was supposed to be uh, clearer, less cloudy, but still had the potential to have clouds roll in during later during that day. And during our ascent of the inner glacier, like we had clouds roll in to the point that, um, you know, it was if you had much distance between the two of you, it was difficult to even see each other. You know, you could kind of barely make them out in the haze. And for this part, the conditions were such or they were so good that, you know, we weren't we weren't roped up for inner glacier. Um, it was a little bit slushy even. Um, and um, we just kind of plugged our way up inner glacier until we made it to Camp Sherman and set up camp. Um, there was a number of parties that were um, either at Camp Sherman when we got there or ended up showing up, you know, once we got there. And, and so there was, there was quite a few people there. I probably, I would say, I don't know, 15 people, uh, 15 to 20 people somewhere around that. And so we did, you know, we did our thing, set up our campsite, um, made our food. I brought an extra pack of freeze diet food just in case and, and was very happy I did so. So I got like a good calorie load the night before and we went to bed and and uh, we tried to prepare ourselves for the summit day. And so the next day we got up and, and early we were the only, we'd noticed that we were the only ones up and, and going up the glacier um, only to eventually see two other people come out of their tents as we're looking back and also come up behind us. And so at this point, you know, let's say that we're like a thousand foot up the route or 1200 foot up the route. We did notice some other climbers coming up behind us. Um, as we were going and, and started to cross some of the crevasses and the terrain started to get steeper, the conditions uh, started to change. And so we had some pretty good, you know, neve conditions um, as far as, you know, the travel went uh, at the lower elevations. But once we crossed the first major or first major crevasse, uh, things really started to get really hard um, and, and not really as, as good as we would have liked um, for, you know, cramponing. And so one thing that we noticed, like as we were traveling, is that there would be these, as, the, as we're increasing elevation, this is about 12,000 foot, and as we're increasing elevation, like there's these little ribbons of kind of like neve within the ice that we're always kind of below this point in which the wind was releasing snow at some focal point like it. So it was like the area that it was loading below it. And so we were traveling along these kind of like neve ribbons within the ice. And so like once we got about 12, it got pretty hard. Um, but 
these little ribbons of neve were like so consistent and we could travel them and then would have periodic gaps between them that we would have to cross on some harder ice and be maybe a little bit more cautious until we got to the new neve. But uh, the entire time that we were traveling, like we were super comfortable. Um, you know, we, like I said, we had climbed uh, Orizaba a couple months before that. And it was, um, it was just a block of ice when we climbed it. And it was different than the ice that we were on in Rainier. Um, you know, it was, uh, it had these features on it that like I've never experienced before. It's just like these big shards of knife-like sections of ice that were just sticking up off the main surface. And it's like to even fall on Orizaba, um, you would have like hit some of those and it would have slowed you down or stopped you or something like that. But, um, I, I think that, you know, we, we had the level of comfort that we did because of what we had already recently climbed on or Orizaba with a, with a hard ice conditions. Um, but as we were climbing, uh, my partner says, you know, if you find a good place to stop, go ahead and take, you know, go ahead and, and, and take a rest so I can grab some water and some food. And so I saw this spot ahead that was, had the wind kind of being released off of that point, but there was no loading on the other side, but just the way that it was kind of angled and everything, I was like, okay, you know, that's a flatter spot um, and a release point. So maybe it'll be softer and I can stop there, like confidently stop there. And so I hiked up to that point and I kicked in, I, I, you know, a couple of times with each foot, uh, trying to get good purchase and trying to get good traction. And um, it, much to my surprise, like it, it wasn't really sticking the way that I was expecting it because it looked like the other conditions that we were utilizing effectively before that. Uh, but it really didn't, it just didn't stick um, very well. So I kicked in a little bit harder and felt what I had was you know good traction on the ice for the area that we were and so i turned around both to see where my partner was see if she was in a good spot where she can stop and you know take a drink and get a little bit of snack and just kind of take in the view and so i turned over my right shoulder and i saw Kristen, and i got ready to let out a woohoo um just over the excitement and everything. And we were at 13,100 feet at this point. And as I turned, my right foot started to, to give way and the ice underneath my foot started to break up. So I turned back around and tried to stick my hand down on the ice to gain a little bit of balance. And when I did that, my hand just slid right off the ice. Like there was, it was hard, it was slick. There was no frictional comp component that was gonna like aid me in trying to regain my balance. And in that split second, you know, like I said, we had felt perfectly comfortable up to this point. Um, I hadn't felt like we were in anything that we couldn't handle or that we shouldn't be doing. But as soon as my hand slid off that ice, there's a few times in my life where I have these moments where I feel like everything just kind of slows down. And my immediate thought was, Oh shoot, I'm in trouble. Everything just kind of came in and I was like, this is steep. This is icy. It's hard. Uh, it, you know, the ice is hard and I'm about to take a bad fall. And the next thing I know it was just the, the fall was so disorienting 
that there were only brief moments that I could even tell what my surroundings were. And so I fell and just started sliding rapidly down the ice. Um, there were two climbers behind us that were a little offset from us. And so one of the things like as I looked back that I thought was, you know, I hope we're not going to hit these climbers and take them down with us. Um, and so for a period, like as I'm falling, it's just, it's just black. And uh, I, I had a moment in the very beginning, or I had two moments where I was able to take my ax and grab it. And I just laid into it as hard as I could to try to get some purchase to self arrest. And the ice was just chipping off like in small pieces and just uh, hitting me right in the face and in my glasses. Um, and, and I was able to do that twice. It aided me in no way, shape or form. I did not get any kind of purchase that would, would help me slow down um, and, and stop what was happening. So obviously there were, there were 48 feet of rope uh, between the two of us. We were roped up for the crevasse travel and we're still roped up on the upper part of this glacier. And so, you know, as I fall, since I'm the person in the lead, I'm going to end up falling nearly a total of 100 feet. And um, my partner got to stand there and watch me fall, knowing that very shortly um, I was going to be catching up to her and she was either going to have to catch me or get ripped off the mountain with me. She and I have, one, talked about this extensively, and two, we've done um, formal debriefs with like professional mountaineers and uh, mountaineering group uh, through a mountaineering group. Um, I, I have like looking back at it with how hard the ice was, how steep it was and how fast I was going. I just don't see any possible way that she could have stopped me. And so and um, how much do you weigh? I weigh 205 pounds. And how much does she weigh ish? Uh, probably 135. Right. So there's that, there's that idea too, right? It's like, if you don't have good purchase in the snow, then that weight difference, she's going to yank you much harder. Right. Yeah. It's so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of force to be had there that, that she ended up having to take the brunt of. And so obviously eventually I just whipped her off the mountain. Um, and we went for a fall together and like i said you know it was just so disorienting that most of the time it was hard to even tell what was going on and as we were falling i just kind of had this thought i was like well if we don't make it back to the crevasse i think there's a good chance that we'll survive um this is like part of the thoughts going through my head as we're falling and somewhere in the fall, we, I, I remember crossing a crevasse that had, you know, a snow bridge. It was kind of filled with snow and it wasn't super wide. You know, it wasn't something we could have easily fallen into, but it was one of the smaller ones along the way. And I'm pretty sure that we hit that. Um, and that is when both of us had our mouths and nose completely filled with, um, with snow. Um, so in the midst of the fall, I had this point where I was like, well, I'm going to die now because I'm going to suffocate. Um, and I was like trying to like cough and spit like while we're still falling to get falling to get this snow and uh, out of my my mouth and my nose. Um, and, and Kristen had the same experience herself. So after that point, and, and based on the GPS track, um, if we would have fallen straight, we would have gone back right back to that big crevasse that we had crossed. But we hit something. I don't know what it was, but we hit something and it redirected us. And instead of going down Emmons Glacier, we stayed over on Winthrop Glacier. Um, 
And then at some point we just, I, I finally stopped rolling and tumbling and, and sliding and spinning and whatever was going on during the process. Um, and I was just on my back and I was looking up and we're still sliding. I'm head, I'm, I'm sliding head down the mountain on my back, looking up the mountain at Kristen. And I just see her coming at me faster than I'm sliding. And my crampons are pointing straight at her. And so I stuck out my right arm to try to create some more friction on that side to get me to spin around so that she wouldn't run into my crampons. And so I'd spun, when I'd spun around 180 degrees, we had finally hit some like lower angle terrain and got into um, some softer conditions. And I immediately started kicking in with my heels. Like, and, and this is kind of what I'd been hoping for. Like during the fall, I was, I, I thought, you know, the only, the only thing that will potentially stop us before we get back to that crevasse is hitting one of those neve strips that's soft enough that either I bust through because of my weight or I'm able to kick in. Um, and, and so that's kind of what happened. It, it wasn't necessarily one of the neve ribbons, but we had descended in elevation enough that, you know, the conditions were softer and we were able to arrest. And so at this point, we were nearly back at 12,100 foot. Um, according to the GPS, we have the entire, the fall in its entirety on GPS track. And so we fell, um, we fell over 900 foot down Winthrop Glacier. And once we had finally stopped, Kristen had, she passed me and stopped just below me to my left, actually quite close, surprisingly close, um, within like a speaking distance that, you know, there was no yelling necessary. We could speak to each other without having to yell. Um, but once we got stopped, the first thing I noticed was that my shirt was just completely blood soaked and I had a hole in it just right over, just to the right of my sternum. And so the, my, my first thought was like, I have to assess what my injuries are and make sure that they aren't life threatening. And so I had, I took off my gloves and I stuck two fingers in each side of the hole and I ripped my shirt open and I saw a hole in my chest, the diameter of the handle of my ice axe, and it was just bulging blood out in a rhythmic pattern to my heartbeat, you know, as my heart would beat the highest intensity of blood flow pumping out of my chest was, you know, during the peak of the beat. Um, and so I saw it and I immediately thought, I've got minutes to live. Um, when I've told this story in the past, I, I think in the beginning, I would say that I thought I was going to die. And I don't think that's a good descriptor of it. I, I think it's um, the better descriptor is I, I knew I was going to die. Um, my right side of my chest hurt a lot. My lung hurt. There was a hole into my chest very close to my heart that was clearly large and, and, and deep. I didn't even know the extent of my injuries at this point. Or at this point, I didn't realize that. I also had a hole in my back and that um, the handle of my axe, my ice axe had actually gone all the way through me. So it had entered into the right side of my sternum and it exited out of the left side of my spine in my back. Oh my so God. I, I didn't know this at the point. Like I didn't even realize at, at this point that I had a hole in my back. The, the ice axe had gone in, during the fall. It had gone into my chest. And, and through my chest and was ripped back out. 
Um, so there was no there was no ice axe in my chest at the time. With what I could see was going on, I already um, I knew it was really bad. And I even said to Kristen, I said, Kristen, um, I was like, I'm not going to make it. And she's like, no, don't say that. And uh, I, I said, Kristen, I've been impaled by my ice axe and I'm I'm certain I'm going to bleed out. And so she had told me that she wanted to try to climb to me. And I know she didn't realize that both her legs had been broken at the time. She had compound fractures of one leg and then um, broken ankle on the other. I had a bilateral pneumothorax, a bilateral hemothorax, a pneumomediastinum, a collapsed right lung, a partially collapsed left lung. My esophagus was nicked and my left lung was nicked. Um, so the first, you know, when she said that she wanted to climb to me, like at that point, I was still afraid that we could continue to fall and end up in a crevasse because we like from where we were at, we could see a crevasse below us, another couple hundred feet or so below us. And I was afraid that any movement would potentially um, cause us to fall further. And, and my greatest concern at the time really was um, I had kind of like pulled in with my heels and was still kind of gripping with my legs. And my biggest concern at the moment was that if I passed out or if I died and I released that tension, that I would continue to fall down the glacier and that I would end up dragging Kristen further down the glacier and potentially into the crevasse. And so the first thing that I did um, was I immediately just started packing the wound with snow to stop the bleeding and like inside the wound itself. Like this is, this is an open hole, clearly visible open hole at the moment in my chest. And so I started pushing the snow into the hole itself. And obviously like it's just started to immediately kind of melt off. And so I just kept repacking it until, you know, it kind of, cooled down a little bit in the immediate area and would hold some like slushy frozen snow. And then once it did that, I continued to pile snow on my chest to make kind of a pressure bandage and um, a larger area just to cause some, some cooling as well, you know, knowing that like flow and viscosity has decreased with temperature and then, you know, the additional pressure on top of that. I thought that was like my best chance as opposed to stuffing it with, you know, t-shirt or gauze or anything like that. I didn't feel that with the depth of the wound that that would be very um, effective. And, and, and so that's what I did. I just shoved it full of snow. And then um, I grabbed, uh, I had an ice picket in my outer pocket of my backpack and I'd reached up with my left hand and I tried to pull it out and I just kept pulling on it and pulling on it and I couldn't get it out. And so I finally remembered that, um, you know, I had it clipped in and so I went ahead and took my glove off again and I felt around and I unclipped that and I pulled the ice picket out and I stuck it in my right hand and I tried to push it into the snow and I just, I couldn't, I had, um, not only was my strength decreased because of my injury, um, but it was just too hard. And so, um, I just started laser, I, I raised my hand and with a stiff arm, I just kept dropping my hand with the ice picket over and over and over just with the weight of my arm and it was going in super slow, but eventually I got that picket driven all the way into, um, into the snow, into the, and it flush with the surface of the snow. And I took that and I clipped that to my harness. Um, so now at this point you're anchored in at this point I'm anchored in. So barring it doesn't, you know, fail. 
if I do die or if I do pass out at this point, like I'm not going to drag Kristen further down the mountain. And so I had a Garmin inReach Mini um, on my shoulder strap of my backpack on the upper left-hand side. And I pulled that off and I clipped it to the rope that was coiled around me and I set it off. You know, I held the button down. If you, if you don't know, you should hold that button down for 20 seconds um, to send out the SOS. And I sent out the SOS. How many day was it now, if you remember? Yeah, so the conditions were pretty clear. I mean, we really got some great photos. There were kind of some intermittent clouds. It was um, low single digits in temperature. And I'm a very hot-natured person, so I had just a puffy jacket and then a long sleeve kind of like tight-fitting um, athletic shirt on underneath that. Um, so it, it was, you know, with the expectation that later in that afternoon that clouds were going to roll in, um, I don't believe from what I recall that it was supposed to be like adverse conditions, but the visibility was supposed to decrease, which was something that was at the forefront of my mind with, you know, now hoping for a potential rescue. Um, but after sending out the SOS on my Garmin, I, um, we had Rocky talkies, love Rocky talkies, by the way, we have four now. I just, Rocky talkie actually sent us um, a free one after the accident. I haven't had a chance to post about that. Life's been crazy. So awesome. Those guys are, really are amazing. My boys love them. We use them climbing. We use them mountaineering. We use them skiing. The best part of using Rocky Talkies when skiing with my children is that they like to go ahead of me. And about every two minutes, my youngest son, Caleb, keys up the mic and goes, Daddy? I say, yes. And he goes, I love you. Uh, oh so, <laughs> so it's my favorite part about having Rocky Talkies. I get that. I get a hundred of those every time we go, we go skiing. But um, so my Rocky Talkie was clipped to my the right my right shoulder strap or, or my right yeah my right shoulder strap like up high on my right shoulder, and so we could see Camp Sherman from this you know from this point and then you know there, now there's two climbers like above us, and so I thought I was like I'm gonna get on this radio, and I'm gonna just go start going through the channels and see if we can reach anybody on the mountain as well that might be able to aid us or might be able to communicate better with SAR or whatever the case may be. And I was on 17 high. I don't have any particular reason for having chosen that channel. Um, it just happened to be the channel that we used on that particular day, probably less traffic from whatever our previous trip was. And so I keyed up the mic and I was just like, and, and I had to lean across my my wounds, right? I had to kind of roll up on my right side to be able to do this, which just hurt like crazy. And I was really kind of concerned about doing and moving much at all to, you know, potentially cause further bleeding or, or more severe bleeding. And um, so I, I kind of roll up on my right hand side and I just go, is anybody there? And um, like I said, my plan was to scroll through the channels until we found somebody crazily enough the other climbers that were on the mountain just below us they were also on 17h so the very first channel that we tried we contacted the other climbers that were on the mountain um which is just crazy to me so they they ended up saying they're like oh are you guys the climbers that just fell and i said yes and they said do you need help and i said yes and they were coming up on skis which um you know i guess we'll get talk and we'll talk about like what we learned or anything you know from that and we'll get to that as well but like it's funny because like in the moment as we were going up and like very comfortable in these conditions i was looking at these people going 
geez, these two are crazy. Like they're skinning up it in these conditions and intend to ski down, you know, <laughs> like I was, um, I was shocked at what they were doing and then, you know, hadn't kind of myself recognized for myself how severe the conditions were. But, um, so they ended up telling me, they're like, okay, we're going to switch over to crampons and we're, we'll come down and aid you. And so they did that and it took for a while and, and we had talked to them and they kept trying to communicate with us. Kristen kept trying to communicate with me. Um, and it, it was such a struggle to communicate um later on in in talking about the incident with them we got reconnected with them about a month later i ended up saying to them i was like hey i want to give you my description of what happened and then i'd like to hear about it as you saw it and so i like did my depiction of what i sounded like whenever you know i was trying to communicate with them and they were like oh no you sound you were your speech was way way slower and way softer um you know, like your impression of it like sounded way too good. And so eventually they got down to us and in the process of coming down to us, they had also set off their Garmin and were communicating with um, SAR directly via the, the Garmin slash cell phone connection that they had. And so um, they had communicated to them that we would, SAR had asked if we would be able to get down ourselves. And I said, no, I had been impaled. And I think at this point is when I had realized I was just soaking wet um on my back and my pants and i had stuck my i i you know i didn't know why i was so wet especially on the cold ice and with i, I get hot so easily i had little clothes on so i had like or, or few clothes on because of how hot i get a few i guess comparatively to to others um that would go up in these conditions but i just didn't see a reason as to why i would be wet on my back and so i stuck my hand behind my back um, to see what to try to feel around and see what was going on and I pulled it back out and my left hand was just completely covered with blood and I realized at this point that um, you know it was even my butt was wet um, and, and in the snow you know the snow kind of goes or the, the blood and liquid in general just goes quickly into the snow and so it doesn't necessarily spread out a whole lot um, but it was running down the back of my jacket and along my pants and so at that point, I kind of began to, you know, be a little bit concerned again, you know, as I had laid on the mountain and, and thought that I had was going to die. Um, I just. It, it, very much, it was very much surprising to me that, um, you know, as I was looking out, I thought, well, at least I'm going to die doing something I love and with an epic view. And I had a lot of peace in that. Um, there was never really a point where I was scared. Um, and my expectation was is that my I was just going to start getting sleepy and my eyes were just going to start closing, just kind of like you see in the movie. I think a lot of my expectations were largely centered around what we've been told by Hollywood. And uh, much to my surprise, like five minutes went by and I was still alive. And then 10 minutes went by and I was still alive and 20 minutes went by and 30. And it, like when we hit the 20 to 30 point, I was like, holy crap, like I'm like, I might actually live through this. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think, you know, in, in those moments, like if the, I, I thought if this rescue happens quickly enough, like I'm actually going to make it. 
And so at the hour marker, um, by this time, the other two climbers had gotten to us, but at the hour marker, the first helicopter flew in and they had a basket on the side. And they're assessing the situation and potentially, you know, landing if they have conditions that allow for it. And for some reason, I don't know if it was a miscommunication or, or what, but SAR had communicated to the other two climbers that they wanted to basically dig them a helipad. And I was like, that's stupid. <laughs> you know, like, we'll never, these two people or one person like is never going to be able to dig out an area large enough for a helicopter to land. And, and I don't, like, I don't know exactly what that was, but the conversation was going on because they were, they, the, the one person had started um, digging out like a place uh, for them to potentially land, or at least I guess hover over an area with a platform to be able to pull us off. Um, but that didn't happen. They assisted the assist the area and um, determined that, you know, they could not come in with the basket with, and uh, that was attached to the side of the, the helicopter, not not one that lowers on a crane, but it's like fixed. And so they left and uh, we laid there and um, the two climbers, you know, kind of kept us company. Um, they gave me a goo with caffeine in it and the guy kept like kind of pushing it, pushing it on me and I was not wanting to take it. Um, but I did it almost didn't give me a choice, just kind of like spread it across my lips. So I'd have to lick it across my lips. And um, I, I do think it helped. I think it helped keep me awake and aware. Um, but time just kept passing on and, and it just kept, you know, going and going and going. And um, after having come to a point where I thought I could make it, we were at about at the three hour mark and I started to feel the pain move over to the left side of my chest. And at that point I thought, I was like, you know, um, I'm potentially bleeding, you know, into my lungs or, or, you know, whatever the case may be, my left lung is now collapsing. I was pretty certain my right lung had already collapsed and that my left lung is now collapsing. And, um, you know, there's still a chance that I might die. And so there was, um, and there were only two moments that I cussed on the mountain, not that I sit here and, and trying to claim that I don't cuss or anything, but we hit that three hour mark and I started feeling that pain transition and that pressure transition over to the left side of my chest. And I just let out a, where's the GD mother effing helicopter? Um, <laughs> Cause you know, it's was like, I, I might actually live through this if we get out of here in time. Now this is moving and, and I'm feeling like I could die again. And so um, it was a total of, five hours before, or, or just about five hours, not quite hours, five hours, but about five hours before I was finally lifted off the mountain. And they came in with two SAR guys that were attached to the, a, a rope that was hanging on the undersea side of the helicopter. I'd say it's about a 200 foot rope. And they dug out a platform to move me on onto. And um, I, I would say for the most part, like considering my injuries, like I was I was having very a lot of difficulty breathing. Um, I was um, getting cold and I was getting pretty shaky. Uh, I had a Mylar uh, bivy in my jacket, the uh, the SOL Mylar bivies, which I highly recommend. And I also think it's funny that it, you know this stands for stay outdoors longer. I think is what it stands for, but you know it's abbreviated SOL, which I find hilarious. Um, <laughs> But so I've been wrapped in the Mylar bivy. You know, I was having a hard time breathing. I was a little shaky. But I would say that other than that, like, 
I was relatively comfortable for what had happened. Um, but once they started moving me, the pain just became unbelievable. Um, at this point, I had had, you know, more than 10 surgeries in my life and, and a number of broken bones and I've experienced pain, but I'd never in my life experienced what I would have considered 10 out of 10 pain. And when they started moving me and putting me into what essentially looked like a body bag with a bunch of straps on it and a ring on it to hang underneath the helicopter, not not a basket, you know, not a litter, just literally a, a bag um, with heavy straps. That was the most pain I had ever experienced in my entire life. Um, and at that point, I was back to with the movement that was going on, thinking that I was going to die. Um, that the movement alone would, you know, tear open any clotting that occurred that had prevented me from bleeding out at this point. And um, I would continue to to bleed out. Um, so they stuck me in the bag and the helicopter came back and it's just lowering the rope really, really slowly. It's coming down. The guy's holding up the straps um, as far as he can extend it and trying to reach for the carabiner that's on the end of the rope. And it's getting lower and it's getting low enough for him to grab it. He grabs it and I'm just watching it and it comes together really slowly. And finally he clips it. And as soon as he clips it, he just like points at the helicopter and turns his finger in a circular fashion, indicating that they can go ahead and go. And I'm, I'm sure this isn't exactly how it happened, but this is how it felt to me at the time. But as soon as he did that, like I figured it would be this like gentle lift off and we would be carried away by, you know, our saviors, blah, blah, blah. It felt like we just got snatched off the side of that mountain in a very aggressive way because it was um, we were on the side of the mountain and then we were just gone. Um, and so during the flight, this is um, this is the point, I, the highest degree of pain I've ever experienced in my life. And I thought to myself, I was like, this must be what they're talking about when they say uh the pain was so intense that I passed out and uh, the, the pain was just so overwhelming. It, like I, I wasn't doing this to try to stay awake. Like this is just how intense the pain was. But like there was a 12 minute flight where we hung from the bottom of the helicopter back to, you know, their helipad that they fly out of to be able to put us on the ground and get us, you know, situated so that we can then fly to the hospital. And for that entire 12 minute flight, I was in that bag going, ah! like just grunting through the pain and I was also trying not to pass out because I was afraid if I passed out I'd stop breathing and, and that would be the end and so like I said earlier you know I had came to terms with dying and was and was really quite comfortable with it but now I'm like stuck in this black bag and I'm like between this movement and this flight under the helicopter you know it's, I'm still gonna bleed out and so three separate times there's an opening over the face, but like the sides are, you know, kind of tall. So I couldn't actually see out. All I could see was a helicopter in the sky. But I just, um, I grunted through on three separate occasions, just kind of bared down and I lifted my head so that I could look out and get that view because I didn't want to die looking at this, um, this yeah. black bag. And uh, the, the SAR guy, you know, seeing me doing this because he's clipped to it as well. He's just like, man, you're effing crazy. <laughs> um, and so we finally touched down, um, you know, on, on the, uh, helipad and they put me on a stretcher and they loaded me into an ambulance, not to transport me, but to, um, cut off my clothes and, and stabilize me as they could and give me whatever medications they intubated me 
and they put me under. And, and so I remember as I'm laying there, this all happens super quick. One guy starts cutting my pants off. The, another person starts cutting my coat off. And as soon as they cut into my coat, feathers just went everywhere. And somebody yelled down. And this must have been when they started to put me under because my eyes just started to close. And I was like, this, is, this might be the last view I ever see. Meanwhile, weather was starting to move in, so one of the search and rescue members advocated to get Kristen off the mountain next. She was flown off the mountain about 45 minutes after he was. If they weren't able to get her off the mountain right then and there, she would have had to spend the night up there with that search and rescue volunteer overnight, with two broken legs. And the next thing I know, I woke up intubated with um, two chest tubes, or uh, yeah, a chest tube in each side uh, in the ICU in, in Seattle Washington Hospital. And so when did you get to see your boys? Um, I didn't get to see my boys until I flew back, uh, until I had been released from the hospital. Um, there's, I was actually released from the hospital surprisingly quickly. Um, and, and then that's a whole other story in itself. Um, but I was back home within five days. Um, there was, you know, it's, there was not a whole lot that was done for me at the hospital. And we actually kind of left under protest because um, I hadn't received any antibiotics. I hadn't seen is received any kind of drain for my wound, you know, whether it was a Penrose drain or a wound vac or anything like that. And, um, you know, as I stated earlier, um, my girlfriend's a veterinarian and she's also a major in the army and has been deployed overseas and, and dealt with, um, you know, the army. Well, you know, let, veterinarians work on uh, people overseas as well, um, which, you know, is kind of expected. But uh, there were a number of things that happened that we kind of protested over um, in, in my quick release. And then, of course, um, we flew back here. And within a week, I ended up in the hospital and immediately went back to surgery, having pus tracks tracking towards my heart. Um, and I've had uh, a total of five surgeries since then, including what's hopefully my last surgery, what will be two weeks ago tomorrow to um, close the wound. So the, um, the original hole that I started out with, you know, it was about the diameter that went into my chest, about the diameter of the handle of the ice axe. And then the hole in my back was, um, you know, just a portion of the point had gone out my back. And so it was a little bit smaller than the one in the front, the whole handle didn't go through. Um, but that, that wound was pointing out and down. And so it drained easily. And then, of course, the one on my chest was pointing down and in and was just really, you know, it's wet to dry packing, but it was just holding lots of fluid and everything else. And so I ended up with a bad infection and um, I ended up having, you know, part of my ribs removed or just when I say part, I don't mean like, you know, two thirds of my ribs. I mean, they went in and they like scraped cartilage and everything around um, the ends of the rib where it, um, where it articulates with the sternum. And then they moved a portion of my sternum, you know, all of this area that is, um, had been infected. Um, and so the original hole was the diameter of the ice axe. And I ended up with a hole in my chest that was nine and a half centimeters long by three and a half centimeters wide and about three centimeters deep. Um, and they left that open for six weeks with the wound vac in it until it had granulated enough over the, the exposed bone. Um, to be able to sew it shut. And that's what I had done two weeks ago. So it was the pec minor was reattached and um, the, the wound was closed. So you're probably pretty relieved that that's all over now. 
I am. It's, um, you know, it's the accident in itself was an ordeal and, and recovery has also been quite an ordeal. You know, I've had, um, I've had abscesses rupture inside my chest that were extremely painful. And, um, when you can sit here and stare at your chest and see ribs and your sternum and know that it's just so close to your lungs and heart, it's a, a very unnerving feeling. And, um, even though I was off the mountain, like I wasn't out of the danger window for quite some time. Yeah. I can just imagine because of the age of your boys that they're, they're telling all their friends, like my daddy has a hole in his chest, you know, running around telling all their friends. Well, and that's an interesting part to it too. Right. So everybody kept asking me, they're like, do your boys understand what happened? And at first I was saying, yeah, You're like, oh yeah, absolutely. Like they know what happened. And then I kind of sat around and thought about it one day for a minute and I was like, man, I, I do they? And so I ended up sending them down and explaining it to them and both of them started crying. And then I realized that like they didn't really understand the full extent or the gravity of the situation. And of course, after that, I felt bad. One particular day, I noticed my younger son, Caleb, kept like running out of the room periodically and then just running back and like snuggling up next to me. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he goes, well, I'm going into the other room to fart. And I said, why? And he goes, because I don't want the germs to get into your wound and it get infected and you die. Oh my gosh, what a cute little boy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they, um, you know, even before my accident, I was very safety conscious. The boys know what an inReach is. They know how to use it. We always take it on 14ers. With, I mean, pretty much any time we have, we, it's just kind of a permanent fixture on my day pack or my, you know, my larger backpack. And, and so we're, we're extremely safety conscious. Um, and my, my oldest son had a show and tell and like the things that he wanted to bring were the inReach Mini, the Rocky Talkies, and some like pictures of him climbing. And then I guess from like what I hear, he told people like my dad wouldn't, my dad. My dad wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the inReach. You know, he was able to get in rescue um, because of this device. And he talked about that like in his classroom to his peers. And so I, of course, very much um, value that technology because without a doubt, I would not be here without it. And, uh, you know, I love being a father and I love my boys dearly. And it gives me the opportunity to continue, you know, taking them on adventures and enjoying life with them and enjoying the wilderness with them. So I, I'm, I'm very thankful for InReach, Garmin, the SAR team, you know, Soul, uh, Mylar Bivvies, like all these things that like aided in my survival. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy that we had the equipment we did to be able to have the outcome that we did. So we, you know, we talk a lot about on the show, like what, what, were the lessons learned and what you want to give the listeners, but I kind of want to reframe that for you. And, um, I want to ask what were the lessons that you learned and what do you want to teach your boys? There, there's, there's a number of them, right? So the, the first one would be, and, and what I didn't tell during the story itself is that Kristen, her, she lost her in reach in the fall. She lost her cell phone 
and she lost her walkie-talkie and she didn't she didn't have a rocky talkie she had a different brand none of well none of those things were tethered and the um her garmin was attached with the carabiner that came with it and and like i said i can't praise like inreach enough and and how it aided me in being alive but the carabiner that came comes with those things are bullcrap when i first bought it i immediately threw that thing in the trash and i was like well that will definitely pop off of there at some point and that's exactly what happened the carabiner was left behind on her backpack and the her inreach was gone and so what i had done is i threw that thing in the trash my boy said that they wanted it and i was like nope this thing's garbage i don't want you to mix it up with anything else that's useful we're throwing it away and i bought a dmm it's one of these tiny like screw lock carabiners that are they almost look like something that's supposed to go on a keychain, but it's a screw lock carabiner that's like rated for five kilonewtons. And so my inReach was like locked onto um, my shoulder strap. You know, my Rocky Talkie was tethered with what they came with, which, you know, are much higher quality carabiners. And then my phone was also tethered with me. I didn't realize, I thought I'd lost my phone in the fall, but it was underneath me. I, I still have that phone and am, am using that phone. Screen's broken, but I still have it. But, um, you know, through our debrief, like one of the things that Kristen has, has struggled with is that if I had died um, or if I had been in a situation that didn't allow me to do the things that I did, um, you know, she stated that like she would have, there's nothing that she would have been able to do. She didn't have those things immediately on her and then eventually realized like the likelihood of her being able to get to me was fairly low. I don't think, I don't, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but like, if I had died or was, you know, unconscious, like she would have had to have crawled to me to be able to get any kind of assistance. Um, so my first piece of advice is make sure that your stuff is tethered to you and that your inReach is on a locking carabiner. You know, we'd also discussed with um, the person that we did the debrief with, they had actually had some big meeting about where should your, where should your inReach be? You know, should it be in your backpack? Should it be out of your backpack? And, you know, he said that the thing that they talked about was like, they determined that it should be in your backpack. Well, I don't, I honestly don't know if I'd have been able to get into my um, inReach if it had been in my backpack. And so that was kind of an interesting conversation and information that he said that, you know, they would go back to their board with and talk about again. Um, so, you know, a consideration in where you place these items is, is very high up on the list. And so, you know, the locking carabiner and having your items tethered to you, you know, these are things that I think are extremely important. Um, We went through this debrief and they determined that it was an accident based on, you know, all the information that had provided. It was an accident in its purest form, right? There's nobody did anything glaringly wrong. And, you know, I want to say that I want to say that I agree with that 100%, but I also don't know that I do. Um, I do think that we could have done some things a little bit differently. Um, you know, we, we talked about like, what were the alternatives? Like, could you have put in ice pickets and belayed each other, you know, and, or ice screws or whatever the case may be. And that would have just completely changed the dynamic of the climb. And it's not something that's typically done in these areas. It's kind of like, well, if that's necessary, then, you know, people don't just tend to climb it because the train isn't generally steep enough to 
be throwing ice crows in and, and stuff like that. And, and I'm sure there's scenarios where people have done that and it's been necessary and it's good to have and they should. Um, but, you know, that's not that's not typically how that that route is climbed and it would have slowed it down so much that it could have caused other issues. But um, while we were comfortable up until the point that I started fall, um, I think we probably should have stopped and talked about the conditions a little more because I do. The one thought that I keep going back to um, is that as we're going up, I kept thinking, man, if it doesn't warm up in this often, like it's going to be a, you know what, to get down. Um, and, and so the other, I think, kind of indicator for me is like, there were a number of teams that were back at Camp Sherman that didn't climb that day because they didn't think that the conditions were good enough to do so. You know, there were only two other people on the mountain with us that day. Um, and again, I, like I want to stress and I want to emphasize, like up until I started to fall, I felt strong. I felt comfortable. I felt like we were making good time. You know, we were going to summit like all these. I had good energy, I had good hydration we should have stopped. I think we should have stopped and we should have talked about it and said, Hey, you know, while we have these like nice little periodic Neve ribbons, we're crossing on some pretty high and hard ice in between. And, um, you know, there's that potential there. Um, if I would be on those conditions again, it would be, and, and, and this is not because of my fall. It is, it's not because I fell. It's not because I'm scared. I think it was a turnaround day. Um, you know, and, and, and I think the best indicators of that, like I said, again, are the fact that there are a number of people that didn't go that day and there were only two other people on the mountain with us. Um, many people could have successfully climbed it. Well, you know, that's it's the, the, the. At the end of the day, you know, it was a freak accident and a chunk of ice broke out from underneath my foot. Um, so it's one of those things that's kind of hard to evaluate. And it's like, you know, had I had that not happened, um, you know, we probably would have climbed it successfully. And, and really what I think happened is like, you know, as I kicked into that spot with it being a release spot that were all these indicators of areas of, of Neve and loading and, and, you know, better places to be like it, I think it probably was that at some point during the day or the previous day. And when I kicked into it, it just happened to be a little bit harder that I didn't get what I thought out of it and didn't punch into the depth that, you know, allowed me the grip that I needed to and was doing on these other ribbons. But when I turned, I'd already created some cracks in it. And then that torque just, you know, continued that crack propagation that ended up making that one little spot um, break out on me. As far as my kids go, um, you know, preparedness is the, is the big thing that I want. Preparedness, uh, a love for life, like an, an adventure and, and being able to immerse yourself in the wilderness, um, despite the difficulties that you face, right? You know, it's something my, I talk about with my kids often is like, as it relates to struggling in school or, or other things in life, it's like life is a constant problem that's always going to have something in the way and so we have to figure out how to navigate that right so just because i had this accident doesn't mean i'm going to stop because i'm not i've already got a plan to climb or near again next year and i already have a plan for a pseudo skinning and skiing of 
one of the Colorado 14ers during the winter as like kind of a mini expedition in preparation for that. Um, you know, we've already got trips planned for multi-pitch climbing in February, get back on epinephrine once again out in Red Rock. And, and um, just because we are confronted, confronted with like difficulties and hazards and everything in life that we just continue to, to push on and not let those limit us and keep us down. Thank you, Aaron, for sharing your story with us. Thanks to Rocky Talkies and the Primitive Gourmet for sponsoring this podcast. And thanks to the American Alpine Club for their consistent support. Show your support by donating on PayPal or becoming a Patreon member. The American Alpine Club podcast is about telling all kinds of stories from the climate community, breaking down the latest climate management plan that impacts our climbing landscapes, sharing stories of climbers epicking in the mountains, trends in climbing accidents, and more. The AAC podcast preserves the legacy of legends like Yvonne Chouinard and Irene Beardsley and highlights the work of climbers who are charting the future like the Full Circle Everest team. Each episode delves into one of the four values of the AAC, climb, protect, educate, and connect. You can find the American Alpine Club podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts. Check it out. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart.